of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this month, May 2021, we take a deep dive into, of course, looking at animal behavior and also nutrition and the human-animal interaction. And today I am delighted to welcome Susie During, who is the owner of consultancy company During Horse Behavior and Welfare, saying, I help horse owners to reconnect with their overwhelmed horse. Welcome, Susie. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Sabrina. Um, yes, very much looking forward to connecting with you again. Uh, yeah. Years so we have seen each other at conferences and at workshops and really you know working together on some things. So looking forward to hearing more about your work with horses. So perhaps you could start with a short introduction to yourself. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I am uh, Suji and I live in the Netherlands where I also met Sabrina. And I think I I'm not really a typical horse person so i do work with horses but um i'm not your average horse woman or horse girl i think i of course i really love horses and i really enjoy working with them but my view on on horses is not per se um looking at them like a riding horse they are to me just one of the so many different species that i really love and uh, I'm really fascinated about uh, just like dogs and guinea pigs and all the other animals um, just like humans actually but I do work with horses because um, I saw that there was such a big gap actually between the everyday practice that we could see sometimes and all the science that we um, are developing and are, are getting to know about working with animals and um, also looking um, at the world through their eyes, looking at the world through their perspective. So yeah, that's my short introduction to myself and to my company. Um, I have one dog, uh, he's, his name is Boris. And I have a horse, her name is Joy, and I have a lot of guinea pigs. And um, I live here in the, ne the Netherlands with my boyfriend, Rudy. So that's a short introduction. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And very much looking forward to hearing all about the various animals. And because you also, yeah, you could tell lots of stories about guinea pigs. And of course, we're going to hear... <laughs> about your your horse joy and, and perhaps even about your dog so can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit you already said you're not your average horse um lady and <laughs> could you perhaps also talk a little bit how you came to perhaps be not the average horse lady and your evolution in you know working with horses oh yes so hmm the interesting thing was my sister actually started horseback riding when she was a little girl. 
So in a way, I could see it, I think, from a distance. Uh, she went to the local riding school once every week. And I think I wasn't drawn to it because it was so, not necessarily my sister, but it was so pressure-based and the horses were in small boxes and it just didn't fit my image of how our connection with animals could and should be. Um, it just didn't fascinate me. I think I I liked cats more because you can just walk on the street and see a cat and the cat is just doing his or her own business. Um, and they are so much more independent and you can actually see the cat while I think a horse, in, in especially in those local riding schools, well, you could see the animal, but you didn't see the animal. There was no room for their personality so i never considered um, joining her local riding school and i think it was only years later when i um, was a little bit familiar with dog training with positive reinforcement and with just asking what what the dog actually wants that i started thinking hey maybe horses are interesting but maybe not in that specific setting so maybe there is actually space for horses to be themselves and space for us humans to actually see horses instead of just trotting that same old circle every week in the riding arena. And um, I guess it was also in my um, master's um, animal sciences where I saw that, that the average horse was trained in such a I would say odd and dysfunctional way um, that I thought, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe that has to change and maybe I can help changing um, the horse world a little bit. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for giving that background. I think these are also, you know, questions we're asking when we're caring for other, all animals you're saying, like the cat going about doing the things that they want to do, that they can do. Uh, of course, have evolved to do. And then, you know, how do the settings or the systems that animals are housed in or cared for or kept in, how do they, you know, facilitate that, promote that uh, opportunity, that's agency, or how do the systems impede it? Um, and so, yeah, th those are really important questions. And you and I have talked a lot about that in the past, of course, as well. So you mentioned you did um, a master's in animal science. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to study animal behavior and your academic career? Um, yeah, maybe you have young listeners as well. Um, that would be very interesting because I really made a terrible choice. Um, in high school, I had no idea what I wanted. Well, actually I had an idea that I wanted to work with animals, but um, I think because of a human perspective, um, I thought I couldn't do something like veterinary medicine, for example. So when I was, I think, 15, I chose um, all the, the subjects, um, the, the, the foreign languages and uh, art and all those things. So I actually couldn't go to, uh, to vet school anymore because I, I didn't um, choose the right subjects. Um, but I was able to correct that. So that was my point. Even if you are on the wrong track, you can always try and see if it works out in a different way. So I um, went to 
um, something like a community college and I did all the extra courses I had to take like math and science and physics and then I started uh, vet school in Antwerp and it was I did that for two years it was an interesting period and actually I love just the animal body and learning about all the tissues and muscles and tendons um, but in a way it wasn't it wasn't satisfying my need for, um, I think, actually understanding things. It was just, in my view, a lot of things to um, to remember, just facts. And that wasn't what I had in mind. Um, plus, maybe also another part that I'm, um, that I'm only, well, recently comfortable talking about is the whole human interaction it was very hierarchical um i think there was really a, a atmosphere of fear and of um well not being enough so i thought well this might not be it for me and it was only then that i learned that there was this amazing other um university education um on animals and it was animal science and I really had no idea before I was getting into um, before I was getting myself into trouble at vet, vet school so it was just a matter of not knowing that there was this education that I really loved. Yes and this is really so interesting and I thought it was funny that you mentioned like oh you made the wrong choice but um, you know, I think it's really wonderful that you followed at the time what you wanted to do and then, you know, finding out, oh, wait a second, I might also need additional uh, training in other areas to then uh, get into vet school and again, following what, you know, resonates with you, what, what is it that you want to do rather than just following through an education um, just for the sake of it, right? So just yeah. seeing what is this about? And um, I really like how you mentioned the word being enough. Uh, like there's not enough of the being, the, the, the being together, um, you know, to, and so talking more about the human uh, animal interaction. And I know that we're going to talk a lot more about this uh, later in the podcast. Can you talk a little bit um, about your master's? What did you do in your master's project? And um, how did you yeah. move forward in that? Um, well, I think, again, an interesting sideway is that uh, the university where I studied is Wageningen. And Wageningen, I think it almost is like a um, like an argument, because on the one hand, Wageningen is very conventional and um, in, in agriculture, but also in animal uh, science, it's very old fashioned and um, efficiency is the the biggest is the holy grail and everything has to uh, work around efficiency on the other hand Wageningen is really um, but obviously different people very progressive and very um, seeing the world through new eyes and very I think more interesting so that was something that I encountered in my master's. Um, I did, again, different courses from different um, areas. So I added a lot of um, ethical um, courses and courses on communication, um, but also on history of science. And I think that was such an amazing choice. And that really 
that really helped me to become the, um, I think, curious scientist that I wanted to become. And again, I didn't choose only animal science courses because that wouldn't um, have brought me to the place where I am now. So I studied, um, I did two um, uh, thesis for my master. One was on uh, dog training and how the interaction between the instructor and dog handler or dog owner um, was, was able to influence the welfare of the dog. And my second thesis was on dressage horses and how head and neck position um, that's just a, um, a specific term, actually how a ridden horse is holding his or her head, um, because that is something in, in dressage, it's something that people actually like, um, how that is affecting their, um, their welfare, and that was then translated into uh, stress signals, but also how that affects the points, the combination, so the horse and rider gets from the jury. And that was actually quite controversial because I, I saw that horses that were more stressed um, got actually higher points. So, um, yeah, that was a very interesting thesis to do. Yes, that is for sure very interesting. Both of these sound uh, very interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the horses, the head holding, the welfare? What are some of the things that you looked at, some of the stress signals uh, and what some of the outcomes? Um, yeah, so those are a little bit the technical parts of the thesis. Um, I, we can get, go into those, of course, but I think what my general idea was that, that it was so hard to do the, to get the data because it, so not a lot of people were um, okay with me filming them. Obviously I can really relate to that. Uh, but I think next to the normal human awkwardness in front of the camera, uh, people just don't want other people to see what you're actually doing with your horse. There is a lot of secrecy and um, I'm still very grateful to the people that I was um, allowed to film, but it was really hard for me personally, emotionally, um, even to the point that I was just holding my camera and crying because the horses were so stressed out. Um, I once saw a horse, he was he or she, I have no idea. It wasn't a horse that I was filming, by the way. Um, so I wasn't focusing on that horse, but I just saw it happening. It was a horse and he was uh, rearing. So he was, um, his shoulders and his body was coming up from the ground. He was, he was rearing and with that he stepped on his tail and he was so stressed out that I think half of the hairs in his tail, um, he, he stepped on those and he just um, pulled them out, out of his own tail. And I think he was so stressed out, so overwhelmed and it was just another, another stressor for a completely overwhelmed and, and anxious horse. So yeah once but never again let's say yes and I'm, I'm grateful you're sharing this because it's very true that you know doing research and understanding more about the human animal interaction and connection and how we you know handle animals or train animals and what we do um, is not always a, an easy task and as you say you know there's the technical aspects of your research and your findings and how those findings can help 
in um, you know changes perhaps in how people work with the animals but then there's also that the human side uh, from mm -hmm. your perspective of course and how difficult that must have been um, and yeah I think that's a really important pro uh, point that you're bringing up there that it's not always an easy task to to do such research especially when we are confronted with the with things that animals are experiencing that is not at all positive. So thank you for sharing these experiences. Yeah. So you talked about the handler, the dog uh, human interaction and the effect on the dog. And uh, there's a lot of research on the effect of animals, particularly dogs on human well-being and our connection to nature. But there are not so many projects actually around what does it mean for the animals? And so I'm quite curious to hear what were some of your findings there with regards to the well-being of the dog? Yes, well, actually, a lot of open doors, um, I think, and that's also part of, of my company right now. I think the same empathy we have for, for our animals, um, we can use that empathy for other animals like humans. And the thing was that I found is that if the instructor, if the instructor is, is just nice and just a warm and, um, well, just a nice being to be around, then, um, and mind this, it's not like a causal um, uh, connection per se. I just found that, that instructors that were nice were associated with um, handlers that were nice to the dog and the dogs were less stressed. So I have no idea if where, where, the, where the circle begins and maybe all three components um, influence each other, which might also be very um, logical actually. Um, but I also saw that when the, the dog instructor was um, shouting a lot and um, not working towards a, a group feeling. So not working to facilitate um, social cohesion between the other dog handlers as well. Um, then the owners were uh, using more positive punishment and they were, well, they were just doing a lot that the dogs didn't necessarily like. Um, and, and the dogs were, um, more stressed out, so more stress signals, but also they were less uh, focused, obviously, and they were less inclined to follow cues that were given when they were given. So it was just a whole circle of, of negativity, actually. And, and I also saw the other side that instructors that were nice uh, were able to have combination, dog, dog handler combinations on their field that, that were nice towards each other. Wonderful, really. Thank you so much again. Talking about the human and other animal well-being, because of course we know that humans are animals too. And you know, hence also your point. You know, bringing that kindness and empathy and compassion to everybody, including humans, and uh, and how that affects you know the animals, the other animals that we are working with, caring for. Um, so yeah, that's really wonderful. And this circle, the the interconnectedness of everything. And, yeah, exactly. Yes. And um, on your on your website and on social media, you talk a lot about joy, your horse that you mentioned earlier and um, and your story. Can you tell us um, your story with joy? Yeah, 
it's it's a very strange story actually um but maybe there is this hidden beauty in it i don't know so um after a while i did join the local writing school for for a few years because i was interested in, in or i decided i was interested in horses but i i just wanted to get the note to know them. So I joined the local riding school and we were once riding uh, outside in the forest and there were, we, we took a new route. Uh, we didn't, we never took that route, but we took that new route one day and we saw two horses and they actually did something amazing. Um, they actually connected with us and it might sound very magical, but it was just a weird experience. They came up to the fence and that actually never happened. Um, I have no idea why, but normal normal horses really just left us alone, maybe because of the pheromones and stress. I don't know, but they never did that. But those two horses, they came up to the fence and they just looked at us and it was really nice and very subtle, very small, but they did that. And a few weeks later, um, I was talking to the mother of a friend of mine and she said, well, my horses are in that same area. Could it have been my horse? And then, of course, obviously, after a while, we found out that those two horses were her horses and that one of those horses um, actually wasn't so friendly and so open. So it was really a, a gap between the way she described her personality and what we saw. And she said that she needed someone to to train with one of those horses, um, and that was Joy. So I just visited them, visited them, and indeed Joy wasn't an open personality. She was very shut down, and um, she didn't make make any connections with not with humans and not with horses. So it was a strange incident at first meeting, but after a while, um, I got to know Joy more and more, and um, I I tried my positive reinforcement training techniques with her, and that was all I think in two thousand and twelve, let's say, yeah, maybe two thousand and twelve, yeah. Um, so it was a long path, and. The cool thing is that now, only now, or the last few years, I actually see the joy that I saw for the first time uh, when she came up to the fence. And it was so weird that our first encounter was such a connected encounter and that I never saw that again for just so many years until we got to know each other. And she was able to get rid of all her past traumas. And well, she didn't get rid of them, but she she could see, I think, that the world was a better place again and that um, I wasn't there to hurt her or to make her more miserable. So it was a weird story that first time. I had no idea how it came that that we had this connection. I'm not so very magical, but it, you couldn't explain it maybe any other way. I don't know. Yes, absolutely. Uh, beautiful Magical connection. Let's just leave it at that because sometimes <laughs> these things, uh, we just don't necessarily have the words for it, but uh, we feel it there. We feel something with another animal or with a place uh, that we visit or with a person and we just don't know why, but it just is right. And it's yeah. that being um, yeah. in that moment that is just so important. And I love the word 
and actually, I love that she's called Joy, and uh, and uh, what a joy, you know, to. Um... Yeah. Well, that actually bothered me for a few years, and um, maybe it's well, I wouldn't change her name, obviously, but I wouldn't like to be called Joy because that will bring such a um, weight to your shoulders if you are called Joy. So I wouldn't call an animal um, by any. Um, I think not specifically emotion, but I wouldn't put any weight on their shoulders because the first year she, she was really, she didn't have any joy and I'm glad now that she does, but um, yeah, I think the name, I, well, I just wouldn't name them joy. I would, I would leave it at that. I wouldn't name joy. All right. Yeah. That's a very interesting point to kind of discuss you know how sometimes we, yeah, may name and name the animal um, something that it, that we feel that it brings to us joy, yeah. and of course we also hope. Uh, I think in uh, in general, bringing the um, you know the benefit of the doubt that uh, people who have and care for animals uh, tend to want to do that with their best intentions, and you and I know very well that you know through a lot of times we don't necessarily know how to best care for animals and that's a big mm -hmm. lack in policy and in guidance and in education and so on. Uh, but yeah, there's there's something to say about names and uh, names of animals. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you. Um, yeah, I was thinking the same as you were talking that it was not very joyful, but what it, like, but then I was also, what a joy that you met and what a joy that she yeah. found herself you know, yeah. being well again um, together with you. So yeah. I get your point. So thanks for, yeah. for talking about that. And yeah. um, you mentioned also that, you know, um, people are asking, we're asking you about working with the horses or training horses, interacting and learning. And mm -hmm. uh, you started your consultancy company. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you do in your company and uh, like, in the introduction, you know, your statement of I help horse owners to reconnect with their overwhelmed horse. Yeah, yeah. So what I do is that I, I work a lot online and um, that's because my clients are uh, coming from all parts of the world, but also because I really like just watching um, videos of training. Because the thing is, when uh, when I'm actually there, I also do that sometimes, but most of my time is, is online. But I think when I am there and um, when the whole setting is just a little bit ready for, for a lesson, then everything can be a little bit different, different in a good way or different in a bad way, but it, it can be different. And even if it's different in a good way, then the next day I'm not there anymore. So I think it's so much more, um, it's so much clearer and so much more like it actually is when people are just shooting a video and we analyze the video. So we try to look at facial expressions. We try to look at um, other behaviors and just how the human and animal are, are feeling. And um, yeah, we, we work with that. So sometimes we don't have an actual training goal. It's more um, getting to know each other. And then we do train a little bit, but just to see what the horse is able to understand and uh, what the horse actually likes, but never with the, with the goal of training in mind of not never, but most of the time it's just a, maybe like a 
social skill, of course, um, instead of doing all these tricks. Um, so sometimes we do tricks, but not because of the, the tricks, obviously. And sometimes it's just people that uh, need help in everyday situations. So they want to take a walk with their horse, but their horse is too stressed out. How can we um, set up the situation that a horse is actually able to learn and able to see that um, they can go out for a walk without being overwhelmed? And yeah, we use um, obviously a lot of positive reinforcement, but I think most of the time we are just talking about the environment and how can we make sure that the environment is okay for the animal and for the for the horse and human to learn and to um, maybe also lose a little bit of the tension and to see if, if we can find their comfort zone again. Because I think in my company, it's, it's very important to find your comfort zone. And I know we have this modern saying with this, with this short, with this cartoon, where you can see someone's comfort zone and then an arrow outside the comfort zone. And this is where the magic happens. And it was one of my, um, one of the people that really helped me, Rachel Beddingfield from Connection Training. She taught me that that might be true, that cartoon might be true in certain situations. So maybe it is good to step outside your comfort zone, but maybe not in horse training with a horse that is like 600 kilograms. And maybe it is okay to do that uh, in your comfort zone and to also um, find out where the horse's comfort zone is. And maybe from that starting point, we can we can make things a little bit more exciting. But I see that I think, well, let's say 100% of my clients have no idea where their combined comfort zone is because we are just pushed outside our comfort zones year after year after year in horse training. So maybe that's the, the, the first step, just find out where the comfort zone actually is is yes absolutely and it is absolutely true that you know animals they will have their own comfort zones depending of course on you know how they were raised where they were born all these different aspects how they were interacted with and then people will have their certain comfort zones and you talked already about certain ways of interacting with animals and you know methods that people have used for years and that feels very comfortable. And now you're talking about the use of, you know, predominantly positive reinforcement with horses, which is not necessarily the predominant way for most people. So even moving to there is pushing people out of their comfort zones, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. there's so many aspects there. And, uh, and then also, as you say, what then uh, becomes the combined comfort zone where can you yeah. you know how can you create a space that each can learn and grow because this is also I guess what that little magic <laughs> is about right <laughs> yeah. um, learn and grow to then also find the common space and being yeah. uh, together so that you can interact and grow together learning from each other yeah. and um, and you talk Obviously, you talk a lot about positive reinforcement training and connecting with your horse and really, you know, the social skills, like you say, how do we, you know, uh, communicate and have that open dialogue and allowing for choices and control. And perhaps you could talk a little bit more about that. How, how do you take people on this journey of yeah. learning uh, new things? What does that yeah. look like? Yeah, well, I 
let's say first a, a just an example that that people are really um, struggling with in the beginning is when you are training um, a horse we we start most of the time in protected contact um, so just uh, a wire or, or anything that will work um, but even after a while when we when we try to um, to work without protected contact there is this this very big issue for a lot of people so when we are training a horse and the horse steps towards you then uh, we are really well i would say maybe even um well most of the people really assume that when a horse steps into your space the horse has to step back so that it's clear where everyone's space is and i do see the the um, well, uh, the, the practical and the technical part of it, but it's it's so much richer, and the communication is so much has so much more um, dimensions than you made a mistake and I have to correct you. You have to step back. Um, I would say that we have a certain goal. We we know what we are doing, or we are trying to figure out what we are doing, because we just want the horse to stay still and to relax and just to keep the four feet on the ground. Um, when we would say you have to step back because you made a mistake, we are putting so much more responsibility on their shoulders, uh, responsibility for a game that they are not ready for. So I would say, well, if they are too close to you, maybe you can step back. And of course, sometimes they that, that game continues and they continue to step towards you, but sometimes they don't. And I think it's up to us to make this, the first um, move in taking responsibility and actually do give the horse responsibility in training when, when they are ready for it, but not in the beginning. So in the beginning, we have to adjust. We have to um, change our, our view of what we are doing. And only then um, we can find the combined um, comfort zone from where we can learn and grow. So actually, that's quite a big, big issue for most horses and horse people, just standing still and standing calmly next to each other. So I think that's one of the um, things that, I, that we start with. And um, I think a lot of horses are incapable of standing still, so they have to be tied with, with ropes or um, they have a, a whip in their face when they are uh, moving towards someone and we just want the horse to understand the situation and to be able to stand still without all the other stuff without whips and without ropes just actually understanding what it is that we need from them and that it's okay for them to to do it and to relax in that specific um, exercise Yes, absolutely. And it's such a different language, right? If we're talking about communicating and interacting, the language now of, you know, removing all those things that you talked about, the whip and the, and the pressure or the, the ropes and the just being, um, both parties are going to be, obviously, we have some sort of plan. So we are much more aware and uh, in uh, on what actually we're trying to achieve. But of course, the horse uh, now, um, she or he will, you know, have to experience something that is completely different than normal. And, yeah. uh, and that will be very different. And I think your point on it's our responsibility 
uh, to take that first step to see how can we improve, how can we change what we're doing um, so that you know both um, can be agents of their own lives, uh, if you may. And uh, and yeah. I think that's also something that you know when we're working with uh, in with animals in zoos or in sanctuaries or wildlife centers, or you can think of your companion animals at home, is really to kind of think about in what ways do we do that, you know, and. Um, and I think to move away from perhaps some of the fears and ideas that are out there that if you, you know, allow that, then you're losing control <laughs> and all those things, um, yeah. you know, so yeah. how do you have those um, conversations and, and in yeah. what ways can you show up uh, in a different way for the animals? Yeah. Yeah. And I think also it, it makes the conversation a lot richer because if you would, um, if you would use ropes to have a horse to stand still when, yeah, well, actually it works. So you aren't bothered by your horse. But I think it's such a richness to actually see what your horse understands of your communication. And I think that's what my, um, what my, what my, what my brain actually um, turns on is just to see how it works and what does a horse actually understands uh, when we remove all the things they have to do. And um, I think that's for me, just like a puzzle. What is it, what is it that they actually understand? And um, um, yeah, that, that, it's a puzzle. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's so important to, to look at all these pieces of the puzzle and to also look then, you know, if we have a certain language and a certain way of working, um, in what way, if we're changing the way that we work, in what way is this benefiting the animal short term and long term, right? And short term and long term, how could it affect or maybe make animals insecure or, right? To really kind of think yeah. through how can we be helpful in these transitions when we start to talk and interact differently together. And also very much um, this richness that you're talking about is to really having the insights of what if we strip away all these other things then mm -hmm. what is really like true when it comes to our interaction as a as a bond as in something that is beneficial to both and joyful uh, and inter and uh, important to both and not yeah. because all these other things and pressures and signals are there and yeah. uh, and whether that is ropes or um you know, the way that we use our voice, but I'm also, it's a, it's a different example, but I always have to think about, um, as you know, I've worked with marine mammals for many years and we did all kinds of presentations where we also talk about showing the bond that exists between us and the animals. Mm -hmm. But often when the, those behaviors are um, engaged in or showcased, if you like, then they would always be on cue. And I've yeah. always talked about um, in my field about how interesting is it if you kind of strip away those cues that then show what your bond is like, but to actually explore and be, right? Yeah. That being together and, and that being uh, the yeah. true uh, reflection of what bond there is rather than one that's on cue uh, or, you know, on, yeah. on rope. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that makes me a little bit sad sometimes because I see people that say that their horse is their best friend and, um, and that's of course very nice thing to say, but maybe your horse is your best friend, but are you actually your horse's best friend when you remove indeed the ropes, the whips, but also the cues and, and the other 
um, yeah, parts of the relationship that only you determine. So how much how much is there actually for the horse to to decide? And are you then still your horse's best friend? Yes, absolutely. And like, obviously, first things first, I'm not a horse horse person, but mm -hmm. uh, I do remember, you know, bringing up the point at the workshop that we did together, uh, when we talked about training, how we, you know, like you mentioned already the pressures, right? And in detail, we kind of discussed um, what are you, people are tend to be focusing on the outcome, you know, are you using negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement, but there's not always very much attention to how did that behavior even start, right? So by putting your heels um, into or pulling on reins or things like that, what makes behaviors happen? And those sorts of cues being as important as, yeah. as the outcomes. Um, that are, you know, given to the animals, if you like, or determined by the animals' um, behaviors themselves. So yeah. all of that needs to be looked at. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you you talk, uh, of course, about, uh, you know, misconceptions in horse training and care. As you talked about, you know, the small stables and the training ways, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, more about perhaps horse riding or walking and, and these related aspects? Um, about misconceptions, you mean? Yes, or perhaps like, um, you know, some people uh, feel it's okay to ride horses. Others are moving yeah. to walking with horses. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, there are, you know, different misconceptions on yeah. the interaction or the caring yeah. of horses. Yeah, that's yeah. a bit of a compounded question. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, I, I think I can answer them part by part. Uh, no, so personally, I don't ride horses. I only walk with with joy. Um, but I don't think that there is this extreme difference between walking your horse and riding them. I think you can actually ride your horse with the same um, same amount of connection um, as you can do while walking with them. There are just so many different aspects to to riding that has to be in place before you um, actually want to ride a horse. But I'm not opposed riding um, in essence. I do think that it's very, very difficult. So that means that um, I see a lot of people, for example, that cannot walk with their horse, but then they think they can ride. And I think you have, you have to have a horse that is really cognitive, able to understand the different uh, stimuli from the environment while walking before you would even make the communication uh, more difficult um, when, you, when you ride. Because when you ride, you cannot see all the different uh, body language things because you are actually on top of a horse. Plus um, the whole physical aspect has to be in order. And that's most, in most of the horses really not in order to actually carry the ride of the weight, weight the, the carry the weight of the rider. Um, but I do see one such a big influence or such a welfare aspect of riding. Um, so Joy actually loves to trot with me in the forest. Um, I put on my, my running shoes and we trot. But she actually likes to accelerate a little bit. And um, it's not because of tension um, that was that was the case um, years ago. But now she actually just enjoys speeding up. And I cannot give that to her. 
um, I cannot run run as fast. And um, I think the only way I can help her with that is actually by 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 riding her. Um, but I'm not going to ride her because she's too old. But I do see that as one of the main um, important benefits of riding that that you that you can that your horse can actually decide on the on the speed because now joy cannot decide well if she wants to walk then we walk and if she wants to trot we trot if she wants to trot a little bit faster then i'm getting very tired <laughs> um but that's it she cannot uh, go any faster because i cannot run faster so that's a part of on, on riding i guess does that answer your question a little bit sabrina Yes, I think so. That's exactly some of the things that I'm looking for to kind of talk about, you know, the pros and cons. I like the nuances and the shades of green, uh, you know, with regards to how we interact with other animals and what can we and can we do. And like you say, there's it will be very hard for us to keep up with a, with a horse or, yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, again, going back to that choice and control, right? Like what yeah. is possible for an animal um, when you do things together or what and being aware of that is um, is so important so yeah I yeah. appreciate that a lot yeah and so maybe I just have to work on my uh, running skill but I don't think I can ever outrun her <laughs> no I think that would be uh, that would be very difficult but uh, letting the freedom right to do it uh, where that yeah. is possible and safe and uh, yeah, yeah that's absolutely um, absolutely wonderful so yeah. Uh, I mentioned briefly that that you and I uh, worked on uh, on something that is dear to both our hearts, and that's about thinking about the well-being of horses around the clock, um, like you know along their lifespan. Uh, and we did, um, you know, we adapted a twenty-four-seven across lifespan workshop, and we made one specifically for horses, and we did this with. Uh, participants at a seminar that you organized also with other speakers and perhaps you can talk a little bit about that workshop and the other speakers yeah. that were there and some of the outcomes yeah um well I think the workshop was so interesting because it it actually showed me all the different um stages that we we put our horses in so um for example, last night I was walking with, with Rudy, my, my boyfriend, and our dog, Boris, and all the fields were empty. And as a joke, I said, okay, so the horses are gone to bed. And he looked at me and he said, well, are you crazy? But actually it is. So many people put their horse to bed at night. And that's a different, um, that's such a, a part of their day cycle that in the daytime, they are on the field, and at night, they are in the box. And why? Well, there are no good reasons to do that. It's just something that we do. And, well, how, how to put it? It was just your, your workshop actually opened my eyes for all the different, um, the different stages that we put our horses through um, during the day, week, month, and even year. Um, and all these changes are not always nice changes for them. And, and for example, we have here in the Netherlands that uh, the field season is starting to um, to come, so that horses can move uh, from from a track or just a, a paddock with sand to the actual grass, and then they start to eat the grass, and then they become 
obese and and sick and and all those things because it's difficult for people to manage the the changes that we put our horses through so it was really interesting to look at it from that perspective and um yeah it was yes and you had invited also some really uh interesting speakers um you know talking about uh, one of them uh, was talking about you know this stable system that he yeah. has developed and that allow for these choices and control for for horses and and a researcher who talked about you know horses indicating whether or not they you know wanted a blanket and um, yeah. on or off and uh, yeah. can you talk a little bit about those sorts of choices and control options for horses yeah yeah, that's really funny because with a lot of clients, we actually use that that research. So horses were were used in a study to indicate whether or not they were able to um, uh, to actually communicate to a human, "Hey, I want my blanket," or "No, I don't want a blanket." And the study that may be good to 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 tell the study wasn't intended on. Um, is wearing a blanket for horses uh, appropriate or not? Because that's such a big debate and people are really fiercely pro or against. Um, but that wasn't the, the, the goal of the study. The goal of the study was to see if horses were, a, were having a preference. That's part one. And if they had a preference, could they communicate it towards humans? And obviously they have a preference and obviously they were able to communicate it. And all the, I would say, 20 or 30 horses that were used in this study were able to communicate their preference to their human or not to their human, to a human after only 14 days. And that was really mind blowing. Um, they would just touch a specific um, sign and then that sign was um, previously associated with putting the blanket on or another sign putting the blanket off. And that is something that we use now um, also in the online training a lot. What does the horse actually want? And yes, we can uh, see their facial expressions and we can see so, man so much of their communication by just looking at them. But I do think that sometimes a actual sign can make it so much easier for the human to, um, to see what it is they want. But there's obviously a but. Um, if you would ask me at this moment, you have two signs, one for French fries and one, one for a healthy meal. Well, what I choose, obviously the French fries, isn't necessarily what is good for me. So um, I think that is a new dimension. Um, we have placed our horses in specific conditions and... Um, I think we also have to know that we have to take the, let's say, final responsibility. Um, but in that sp in that space, um, we do have to give also responsibility towards the horse, but just know that I'm not making the best decisions all day for myself. So I don't think a horse is able to do that as well. 
Absolutely, yes. When when I started, you know, working more on on choice and control and really making that operational, because they're very hot words in animal well-being, and you know, like, uh, and I'm always interested. Okay, so what does that look like? You know, how can we facilitate it? And I love how you're using the word obviously all the time. Like, yeah, obviously they can have preferences, and obviously they can make the change. <laughs> Uh, and the choices so uh, yeah and how good are we at um, picking up right uh, the obvious things that they could do uh, but yeah. we might not just like we might not be able to run uh, enjoy her pace um, or swim in a dolphin speed but um, you know what what would be those signals that we need to be <laughs> picking yeah. up that they're obviously giving us um, yeah but uh, yeah so what does that then look like in and um and also, again, I think it's so important to think this through because when people say, oh, well, we're going to lose control or, you know, we, how can we manage the animals if they just do whatever they want? Because I guess a lot of times with these types of topics, people swing to all the way the other side, right? They, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily see the nuances and the possibilities. Yeah. But yeah, in what way do you, if you let animals choose what they want, where they want to go, uh, and also even what they want to eat. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. choosing French fries <laughs> is not very good, but uh, could it be on the menu um, once a month or something if it's appropriate for people, yeah. obviously not for horses. <laughs> exactly. But, um, how do we yeah, how do we propose, um, you know, um, like when I propose that animals can choose their sessions, people go, well, you know, then how do we get anything done? And I'm like, well, you create an overview yeah. right how many sessions do you need to do to care for their health yeah. and you know anything else and then you can still give choices and then it's also just like in the airplane like i'm sorry that your choice is not available <laughs> today but these are the yeah. two we do have right yeah um, because ultimately yeah there is um, there is a need for us to make sure the animals uh, are not becoming obese or not getting the right environments yeah absolutely yeah. So there was this example of a horse that was taught to use the signs um, to communicate um, his preference for a blanket. But the thing was, the horse isn't healthy and uh, the owner knows that and she's really um, doing all she can to get the horse healthy again. I think he has the leaky gut syndrome where, well, obviously things leak out of the gut that shouldn't. And... Um, this means that sometimes his muscles are very tense and warmth will make the muscles um, softer and more relaxed. However, when you are, I would say, I don't have a leaky gut syndrome, but I, I think that sometimes his muscles feel like almost that they are bruised. Um, and when she would ask him, do you want your blanket on? Yes or no? He thought, well, no, because my muscles are already very sensitive so if you are putting the blanket on me then that might be uncomfortable uh, but actually for the longer um, for the long run it was better for him so um, we were very happy to to be able to ask him that but on certain days she didn't ask him and she just put on the blanket because she knew that that was for his welfare the better option so we do have to keep those things in mind that they are not more they aren't more capable to make the right decisions than we are sometimes. Absolutely, yes. And I think these practical examples are so important to really look at, you know, that animals are making choices. Obviously they do that all the time. Uh, otherwise they wouldn't really get anything done in their lives, would they? 
But um, <laughs> why are they making those particular choices? Or your example of um, you know this particular syndrome, or there's examples of animals maybe you know having a, a pain in the tooth, and they you know choose to just like be under a waterfall. Uh, I believe that was uh, Dr. Heather Bacon who gave that example once about a bear, and it just seemed that this bear was really enjoying this waterfall on his face all the time, or her face, mm -hmm. I can't remember. Um, and that seems like a great thing, right? You can choose where you want to be in your environment, but then. Um, when they started to look closely, they actually found out that the, there was a, a tooth problem. And once yeah. that was solved, you know, that particular choice of being under the waterfall, which kind of helped stop the pain a little bit or numb it a bit, um, mm -hmm. was not, you know, made. And so it's always, it's good to see that animals are making choices, but, um, you know, why are they making those, those choices? And um, yeah. It also reminds me of a cow study once that looked at getting, you know, the cows to use showers when they want it, you know, just mm -hmm. as, a, as an addition to their environment. And uh, one of the cows was showering the whole time, but that was also because she wasn't feeling well. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like you say, we always have to really look uh, closely. Yeah. And, um, and at the same time, sometimes we do need to make decisions, um, you know, just like we do uh, for ourselves. Sometimes we have to do things we don't necessarily want to do or other people, you know, have to tell you, no, no, you are now going to do this. Uh, yeah. or we'll do it for you because, um, yeah, we're not always the best <laughs> at deciding those things. But um, exactly. Yeah, we are just just like horses in that in that um, I, I guess like in, in that way we, we yeah. cannot be we don't have the right decisions at all times. No, no, we're just another animal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and throughout this podcast, you've talked a lot about um, connecting with people and courses and you know education and you know telling a different story, changing the narratives. And um, you're developing some other training also for professionals. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, that's very exciting and very um, new to me. So I'm starting uh, this summer a program for people that want to um, professionally work with horses in this way. Um, and I'm not really, um, the details are not fully, um, I, don't, I don't have the details, but um, it is because I saw that there was this great demand for rich knowledge and for just more than um, a, a one hour lesson every week, or um, there was more, more demand for, for that, I think, deeper knowledge uh, about the human horse connection and um, that's why I, I really like it because I can take people with me on my journey in um, over a year. I think it's going to be one one year and, and six months, something like that, or maybe even two years. And to um, don't don't just take off the, the the superficial parts on how to use a clicker and things like that, but really go deeper. And I think with every layer that you go deeper, it becomes more interesting and more valuable. So I'm really looking forward to it, um, even though I don't have the details yet. Um, but I do think that the world needs um, this time and this ethical um, perspective on, on keeping horses and the things we do with them. Um, so yes, I'm very, very excited. Uh, but it's also for me very difficult. It's such a big project. 
I'm not really good with bigger projects. So um, thankfully, I have my mom to help me. She is a, a psychologist and she helps me with a lot of things. So we actually do it a little bit together. Absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, just like you do all your other projects and the training and the interactions with the animals and with your customers that uh, step by step, you know, you will you will get this uh, big program uh, broken down and you know on the on the road uh, and it will and it's a dynamic process right like you say it's over time and it will evolve and things will be added to it so it's an ongoing journey uh, together with with horses so I really enjoyed it and of course we will make sure with this podcast that there is a, a link uh, for anybody who wants to reach out to you and um, connect and maybe do training with you and so on so they can find you and and also find out more about this upcoming uh, training for professionals and of course we all love stories and you know each podcast we hope always to conclude you know on a on a good story or change maybe that you were able to affect or connection you have uh, maybe with your guinea pigs or with joy or your dog Um, so could you in conclusion share uh, a story with us um yeah well maybe one of my guinea pigs her name is laura and um she's very very shy and um so what i would normally do i would just because they don't live in a cage they just live in my um in my study um just on the floor and they have all these little um cardboard boxes and and um small nesting areas um for horse people, it's a little bit like a pet of paradise. They can just walk anywhere and they can sleep anywhere. But Laura was still very um, insecure and very uh, timid towards people. And um, the funny thing was that they have to get a, a small uh, pill of vitamin C every day because guinea pigs cannot, can't make uh, vitamin C um, in their, um, they can't make it themselves. So you actually have to make sure that they get a lot of vitamin C. And um, the funny thing was my normal brand of vitamin C, it was um, that the store didn't have um, new, new, didn't have any uh, pills of the normal brand that I used to have. So I had to buy another brand. And for some reason, she really liked those. And I saw that giving her that new vitamin C pill, um, created this new routine i think she she liked it better than the the previous one and um it was so funny that such a small difference um made such a huge difference to her because now she knows the sound of the vitamin c um bottle and now she is coming towards me instead of um just being timid and and staying in her nesting area so I'm really excited about what the what the future will hold for me and Laura um, to see if she can actually enjoy our, our time together uh, because of the new pills. Wonderful. So I'm curious, of course, now I'll have to look it up um, because now I'm like, oh, what do the guinea pigs, you know, how do they do that if nobody can give them that? Um, so, but that's for another day. Yeah. But thank you so much for sharing that and, and to hear also this paradise of them <laughs> just going about doing their own thing, you know, when they want it, as they want it and, um, and the connection they yeah. have. So that's absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much, Susie, for coming on to the podcast. And uh, I look forward to connecting. Thank you for having me.
Absolutely. Yeah, it's a delight. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. So another end of another podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself. To be at your best to achieve, of course, excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.